the home of Captain W. L. Garner in St. Helier, Jersey, on Friday the 13th of June 1975. At the time the Desert Air Mail route was being operated by the RAF, Captain Garner was a fitter in the RAF. Captain Garner, where were you stationed? At Abu Kerr, about uh, 10 miles from Alexandria. And what types of aircraft were you looking after? Uh, we were uh, rebuilding and repairing DH-9s, DH-9As, Vickers uh, Vimmies, Vickers Vernons, Vickers Victorias, and DH-10s. And what were your main problems with these aircraft? Well, the spares was the main problem. And it wasn't until we started our own factory, such as uh, making our own propellers at Abukur. Also, we had a moulding shop where we could do castings, uh, which uh, were holding us up. In, in one case, we had, uh, I can remember doing a complete overhaul on a, on a Falcon 3, in, in a Rolls-Royce engine uh, that had bullet holes in the sump. We just had to put patches on those. But eventually, uh, the new engines came in Napier lines. We had problems with the Napier lines because we didn't have the fuel. They were supposed to run on a high-octane fuel. We didn't have that, and so we used to mix 20% benzol with 80% petrol. And then uh, we got various uh, troubles with it because of the Napier line engine. Uh, the plugs were timed at uh, different times, like five degrees ahead of the other because of the heat question, distribution of heat. Water was a problem because most of the engines were water-cooled, so the aircraft had to carry uh, four-gallon tins of water, uh, either under the uh, fuselage or under the wings. Um, then the distribution of spares on the desert. Actually, uh, this wasn't overcome, uh, this was eventually overcome by the, I'm going to mention the KLM, the KLM who, uh, they had huge iron uh, boxes, more or less, gallon uh, tanks, about a thousand gallon size, where they used to have about four locks on them. They used to put those onto the desert, leave a lot of spares in there, and if anybody wanted them, they had to land alongside these. The flight engineer kept the keys, and uh, they could uh, have access to the spares. Rubber was a problem too. Rubber, most of the joints, the water joints, were rubber and they used to perish in the heat. And all of the spare rubber was um, packed in French chalk. With the aircraft flying the desert air route, was it fairly straightforward or did you get a lot of trouble? Uh, it was an awful lot of trouble. I believe some of the flight engineers used to carry lots of adhesive tape and I've heard of some of the mechanics getting out and repairing uh, engines in flight or uh, sealing joints. Were you uh, at any time taken outside your base? Did you have to go out into the desert to service aircraft? Uh, no, I didn't. I was uh, uh, at both ends of the route, of course. Later I was at Baghdad and I was working on the test benches and all we did is... Uh, have the engines ready and uh, take them over to the squadron. 60 squadron, there was 60 squadron, there was 45 squadron, there was 30 squadron, there was 8 squadron. Uh, 84 squadron, of course, was at Shaiba. Uh, then they brought in another squadron, which wasn't on the, on the airmail route at all. It came from Bangalore in India. It was number one squadron, Snipes. And incidentally, they used to pack up flying at 12 o'clock on the Snipes because it was much too hot for them. 
I believe you had some connection with the installation of a petrol tank in the desert at Ziza. Yes, in 1927, on the plains of Ziza, that's beyond the Judean Hills, a vast area, a natural landing area, but uh, no fuel. So the, a tank was placed there with uh, heavy locks on because the natives used to have a, have a go at anything that looked like treasure. And in 1927, we took a, a six-wheeler Morris. I think there was about the first six-wheeler Morris car that we saw, at least. And we took that to uh, from Gaza to Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, we loaded this with four gallon tins of petrol. And then down to Jericho and across the Dead Sea, across the Jordan uh, River Jordan, to Amman, where we stored this until we got sufficient to replenish the tank. But however, on about the 4th of March 1927, the snows and the water rushed down there and the bridge was broken away. It left a gap of about eight feet between the two parts of the bridge. And some enterprising Arab came down with an old Ford truck and he parked on the other side and we managed to hand the petrol over. And eventually we got sufficient petrol to fill this tank was a thousand gallon capacity. We started from Amman, going through a little village of Daoud, and of course the streams there were overflowing, so we had difficulty there getting over. We eventually got there, and we spent the two days in one of the railway stations on the old Turkish railroad of Lawrence fame. We had a uh, a couple of uh, RAF fellows to act as sentries while we filled the tank, and eventually that was duly filled, the locks put on, and we left. Uh, I believe later, when aircraft did land, they had difficulty in opening the top of the tank, so, so somebody had to go out there and splash it all with grease again. I think the natives must have been interfering with it. Several times there were marks that where they tried to fire the uh, the lock off, you know, with rifle fire, and uh, uh, the trouble then eventually was water condensation at night time. So, the introduction of chamois leathers, although it had really been previously used, this became a compulsory. Now I've jumped ahead a bit because, of course, you moved from the RAF to Imperial Airways. Uh, Can you tell me how that came about? Well, during 1926, when the RAF were axing the uh, expenditure, of course. Uh, they offered people in the RAF their premature and complete discharge if they could get work outside. And at this period, they were, Imperial Airways were advertising for engineers. Now, I applied together with a friend of mine, and as we served in Egypt and uh, Mesopotamia was what well, then, uh, we were taken on as ground engineers. And I left uh, England in November 1926 for Cairo. When I got to Cairo, we got our various jobs and we were uh, allocated to different stations down the Persian Gulf. Uh, but four of us were sent down to Basra to embark on a ship going down the Gulf to various places such as uh, Bushir. Bandar Abbas, Jask, and then further down into Baluchistan, Gwadar. 
but the Persians wouldn't allow us to go down. So some of these fellows were sent back to Cairo and I remained a station engineer at Basra. Now, on what were you working in Basra? At Basra, we had the, uh, the DH-66, the uh, three-engined Hercules. They had three, uh, three engines, Mark III Jupiters, about 365 horsepower each. And these aircraft used to fly from Cairo to Gaza, from Gaza to Rudbar Wells, and Rudbar Wells down to Baghdad, and then Baghdad to Basra. And I serviced them on the return back to Cairo. Occasionally, when there was any special work to do, such as going down to Bahrain, I can recall it, uh, an aircraft had to fly down to Bahrain in, the, in command of uh, by Captain Travers. We were taking a, a pearl uh, merchant who was buying a pearl necklace for Barbara Hutton or Mrs. Woolworth, as some people call her. And so we flew down there. But these jobs, when we went away from the, the depot, like Basra, I had to do the routine on the spot. And it was very hot, very hot. I can recall one time I was standing on some uh, iron ladders or step ladders that we used to carry up the fuselage and then take those out to, to get at the, first, the center engine. And I was standing up there and perspiration was coming from my brow so I was everlasting crying and I can remember a Punjabi officer who was taking a stroll round because it was it was uh, garrisoned by Indians with Indian officers and I can recall he looked up at me and he said by God you must get a lot of money and what were you getting at this time seven pounds a week and what was life like in that part of the world at that time well, we were so loyal and so keen to do the work, we never thought about the material gains. It was for the empire we were working, and that was the spirit throughout. It was pride. You know, we thought the job we did, we didn't think, we had no fear about it failing. We just thought of success when they, naturally, where skill ends and luck begins, you know, a lot of people say, by God, we got there. But we did have a lot of pride. We worked like hell, and we just thought of the airline and the name that the Imperial Airways were getting at the time. Now, the frequency of service uh, through Basra and Baghdad, <clears throat> and certainly further down, was not that uh, often. I think it was once a week at that time. What did you do for the rest of the time? Once a week, well, we'd probably be making plant, because in those days they couldn't send plant down. We had to make our own rostrums, uh, fit up our own workshops. And I can recall uh, doing all kinds of jobs. One of my, one of my uh, gadgets I made there, it was introduced throughout the line, uh, we didn't have any beacons until Chance Brothers supplied one later on, but I suggested that we put a, a whole flare, which was a magnesium flare, which burns for three minutes. And we fitted that on the top of the hangar. Uh, it was, uh, it was uh, suitably guarded for fire precautions. And uh, the switch was in the office. So when the pilots used to fly down there at night time, they used to ask for a, a, a beacon, and we used to press the button, and lo and behold, we had this brilliant flare. And I first fitted that up in the Persian Gulf on the 150-feet wireless mast. And I used wire for hauling it up on a little pulley. And the two wire ends I put to a battery, and that almost lit the aerodrome up. 
You must have also seen a lot of the record breakers passing through. What memories have you of them? Oh yes, there are a lot of those. Yes, there was uh, there was Keenan Piper, there was uh, um, Matthews and Hook, uh, there was uh, um, Bert Hinkler, of course. He came down to Basra, but then Chichester landed at uh, at Bushehr. He recalls in his book when I give him a camp bed which collapsed during the night. That was the only collapse he had on the trip, I think. But uh, when he when he landed at uh, at Bushehr, he'd set an alarm clock for his ETA, and of course I went out to guide him in. Naturally, we always used to have to go out because uh, the uh, undulated surface of the aerodrome and also the wind, the engines weren't strong enough to to prevent the weather cocking. So in the early days, we always had to go out and hold one of the wings to guide them. And as I went out, hold the bell rang. This then I thought, hello, this is this Marley. He said I didn't believe him. He mentions that in his book that I didn't believe him. Well, I thought it was very smart. It's a thing that I would have liked to have done, you know, pit up little gadgets. Uh, there were other people came round. There was Matthews and Hook. They come round. Unfortunately, I did endeavour to service his aircraft to the full extent of my abilities. But he was a chap that said, uh, leave well alone. So I said, you really mean that? He said, yes, well, it, it wasn't well because one of his oil pipes broke over the over the jungle in Burma. And uh, they came to grief there. Well, he survived, but Mr. Hook, unfortunately, uh, died through exposure, leeches. Amy Johnson, she should have landed there, but she flew over to Linge. I think there was some trouble with her papers, but uh, she had the usual permanent luck, and got away with it. Then, at one time, the Duchess of Bedford, this was before we operated our station, the Duchess of Bedford was flying down to India with Barnard and Elliot, and uh, they suffered with engine trouble and had to land there, and the only rescue suppliers were uh, Imperial Airways, and they sent me down and we had to take the engine out and put a new one. I think it was backwards and forwards about two or three months there. And eventually the engine came out from Bristol, and we transferred it onto a barge, and then into this old Persian hangar. Uh, going back to uh, the 12th of February 1928, when Bert Hinkler was attempting his uh, uh, record flight, he arrived at Basra, a very worried man, because when he got out of his uh, much-oiled aircraft, he asked me, he said, will you, first of all, check the oil to see if if it's any good? You see, so I, I took a sample from the sump, because he had a wet sump engine on his avian, it was a Cirrus engine, and so I took this oil, and it was very, very clean, absolutely as new. So I said, what's your problem? Well, he said, ever since Saloom, he said, I have been using an awful lot of oil, and oil has been flowing out the breather of the crankcase, and uh, he said, I've taken the spring out of the pump. He said, at Saloom, I took some of the, c the cylinders off and put new rings on. He said, even I had to put a sheet of emery, uh, of emery paper on the side of the fuselage and rub them down for clearance. And eventually I fitted the rings. But he said, I'm still getting a lot of oil. Yes, I helped Bert Hengler to carry out the routine, checking his uh, engines, the clearances, and 
checking the magneto. Uh, I did a little repair on one of his cylinders. It was broken. Uh, some part of it was broken. Uh, his peter head was uh, hanging a bit, you know, on one bolt, and I fixed that up. Then he told me that he had a cracked uh, tail skid, so I bound that with uh, tape. Uh, he said he didn't want to have a new one, he'd manage it, so we, 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 we botched it up, or patched it up, you can use either term. And uh, then I thought, well, I'll do a final check, and this was about midnight. And I took my torch around, had a good look at the controls, and then I checked his tanks. The, uh, in the, it was a two-seater avian, but in the front cockpit he had a spare tank, uh, which I endeavoured to take the tap off. I was taking the tap off, and he said, oh, don't, is it, no use looking in there, he says, because I haven't used that yet. I said, well, what's in it? He said, oil. I said, oh, really? Well, i just check it. So I opened it out, and lo and behold, there wasn't a drop of oil in this tank. And I said, now, how do you get this oil? Because, you know, you must remember that this engine, a Cirrus, it was a wet sump. It used to carry about 21 pints. A wet sump, and they used that oil then to replenish the sump. And this tank was to used to replenish the sump. Well, he had a tap in there. I don't know which way it was operating. He wouldn't let me see it. But uh, when I went to look in the cockpit, he went there also. And uh, he had a very worried look on his face, and I said, well, what's wrong? Well, he says, never mind, he says, forget it. He says, don't tell anybody about this. And what happened, his supply from the spare tank had got into his sump, and all this work he'd done was unnecessary. And further to this, he had a little float that was protruding out the top of the crankcase with a little red knob on, showing, when it was at its maximum height, that the sump was full. Well, that thing never moved. Surely he could have realised that he must use oil. And that was always in the up position, so that satisfies him, that he had oil. I can understand the bloke saying, oh, well, I've still got oil, but he didn't know where he was getting it from. However, filled him up with new oil, and the following morning, uh, we went off. And I said, now, the aerodrome is very rough, uh, I don't want you to damage your tail skid, so I put the tail on my shoulder, and he pushed it out to the point of takeoff. And that was Bert Hinkler on his way to make a record flight. That's it. That was him. He went on his first. He said, "I'll see you again." Well, of course, he came back, and uh, eventually he, you know, he had met with an accident in the Alps, I believe, wasn't it? Yes. If we move on to 1931, uh, you were then involved in the first experimental airmail flight from Karachi to Darwin with Captain Alga. And as we know, the aircraft uh, had a forced landing at Kopang. How did you become involved in this particular flight? I was acting as flight engineer, and I had to carry out the, the routines on the engines uh, and uh, equipment at stations where we had no staff. I believe the last station uh, where we had no staff was Delhi. And from then on, I was on my own. Barnicott, of course, did the rigging, and I did the uh, engines and refueling. Uh, we flew on to uh, Allahabad, Rangoon. Eventually, we got to Batavia. And I understood that when we got there, that Barnicott and Mullard were to remain behind and 
Olga, Captain Olga, Jock Sang, the radio operator, and myself had to continue to Australia. However, we all stayed on board, and we flew on to um, Rambang, where it was a very, very sultry night. We, we had to refuel in the dark, of course, and the petrol was brought to us in drums, Oh, they looked a bit old, so we had to take precautions regards water and chummy leather. And the hose supplied was very, very short, so we had to keep on standing each drum on top of the other. And about, I don't think, it must have been the early hours of the morning we finished. And uh, I wasn't very keen on the the drums. I thought perhaps they weren't all full, so I filled four spare tins four gallon each, and stowed them in the aircraft. And you fed this into the fuel system as you went along? Yes, I put them in from inside the aircraft. I had access to the pump because the the, the tank that we had in the fuselage, uh, we had a, a swicky pump, and of course it was gravity supply, so we had to pump up the petrol from the, the main tank in the fuselage to the gravity tank in the midsection of the upper wing. And uh, the only way you could read were two gauges, uh, glass gauges. I believe, uh, if my memory doesn't fail, we held, they held 150 gallons each. So I used to fill the pump doors up into the top tank. And when, uh, when the tank was a bit low, I put in the 60, extra 16 gallons. Did you look at the uh, quality of the petrol at all at Rambang? Oh, yes, we had to check that, and it, it all went through a chamois leather. The petrol was all right as far as I was concerned. It was, it was through a chamois leather. There was no moisture, no water, and we had no occasions of uh, spluttering or misfiring of the engines. The fuel was okay. Now, when this particular flight uh, had a forced landing in Copang, um, Kingsford Smith came up to collect the mails, and I believe you went back uh, to Darwin with him and with uh, Captain Roger Mullard. That's right, yes. When uh, when Kingsford Smith came over to Copang to collect uh, the mail, he also, w we were instructed, I wasn't instructed, I was just part and parcel of the issue, but uh, the uh, captain was instructed to proceed to Australia and proceed to Western Airways to take over another aircraft of a similar type, which was being either bought or loaned by Imperial Airways from Western Airways in Perth. So we flew over in the Southern Cross. I can report a call sitting, looking through the window, because we're well overloaded, I'm certain, because I could the blades of the propellers were almost flat, because the, the propellers he had were, I believe, were the... German Schwarz propeller made of a compound with wire mesh, wire in a compound, something like um, this formica. However, we got off, and during the time, uh, I did uh, make up a little poem, and I put it in the papers. It was something like, uh, up above the clouds so high, you know, um, in the cockpit sits a chief eyeing the compass like a thief looking for rocks he met before when he was knocking at Bert Hinkler's door. However, we did get across, and it was on Anzac Day, 1931, and we were greeted by uh, lots of Australian kids 
calling us pommies. I couldn't say we were pommies, but still, we were called pommies. And uh, we arrived and we had a le- uh, we enjoyed some of the, the festivities of the day. And after a few days, I assisted uh, another engineer on doing a top overall on the centre engine of the uh, Southern Cross. And uh, eventually the time arrived where we had to go down to Perth. We went on the Colinda, one of the state boats, a beautiful boat. We went down as uh, we were cargo passengers. Uh, quite a few shearers were on board. We had a quite a nice trip, calling at Wyndham. I don't know if it's in the correct notation. I haven't got my map with me, but we called it Geraldine Broom, Carnarvon. We stayed with the pearl fisheries chap in Broom, uh, uh, Colonel Jeffries. And uh, eventually we arrived in, in Fremantle and stayed at a hotel in Perth. Uh, the aircraft that we're, we were taking over wasn't as qu- equipped for the Empire routes, so we had to have several modifications made. The radio set had to be fitted, and uh, the aircraft had to be electrically bonded, which caused a few days' delay. And eventually it was flown to Broome, where it was handed over to Mullard, Mullard, Nye and Sang went as passengers and the crew on board were two brothers, engineers and a Captain Nicholl, I think, and with the aircraft was handed over at Broome. Um, these two engineers were supposed to do a routine and refuel the aircraft, but I was up uh, following the following morning. I was up early, went down to see how things were, and the, the petrol was still standing there in tank. They hadn't even put it in. They'd they'd stopped when we arrived. They hadn't done anything, so we cancelled for one day. And I refueled the aircraft, did the maintenance, and we flew into Darwin. At Darwin, we had a spot of trouble with the radio. The radio, uh, the supply for the high-tension current LT was a little wind generator situated behind the cockpit on a standard to get the main slipstream of the engine. Well, we weren't getting any HT, so I kept on adding a little bit of a, a wood to get a sufficient height, and uh, eventually the radio operator gave us a thumbs up. He said, OK, when we left... We left our luck with us because we didn't have any radio from Darwin to Singapore. At Singapore, we uh, got the radio system repaired and on we flew to Karachi. The aircraft we took, we, we took over from Perth was a DH-66, but with uh, further modifications and also had a tailwheel instead of a tail skid, so that meant we had brakes. So that was something we had to get used to, but uh, it made things much easier because uh, we'd been used to landing on uh, aerodromes with sufficient length for the tail skid to pull us up. But uh, this one had a tail wheel. I think it surprised a few people because eventually it came to grief overrunning the aerodrome at Guadalajara and uh, filing up in a ditch. Later on still... You were involved in some of the flying boat um, uh, first services and survey flights uh, across the Mediterranean. Any special memories of these? Yes, yes, I remember on the non-stop flight 
from uh, Hyatt. Uh, we had to, uh, I did the refueling on this aircraft and, uh, and I think we carried an awful lot of petrol because the barge had to keep going back to Hamble to, re to replenish. And uh, we took off at night and flew direct to Alexandria. Uh, the main job that I had, although I was first officer, I was acting flight engineer as well. And the petrol system was rather complicated because we had uh, more tanks in for this long flight. And so, without causing the, the commander any worry or spluttering, I had to keep my eye on, on the gauges to make sure that I didn't change over when one tank was running dry. So my job was, uh, I was fully occupied in keeping the trim of the aircraft and the fuel in balance.